You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Hello there. You're very welcome to this podcast. My name is Ashley Elliott and I am a rheumatology registrar based in Northern Ireland. Today we're very lucky to be joined by Dr. Clive Kelly. Dr. Clive Kelly is a consultant physician and he states that his interest is in people. He is trained in both rheumatology and chest medicine and divides his time between clinical, academic and teaching roles in UK and Africa. Dr. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me along, Ash. So today we're going to look at ILD and we're going to be quite ambitious and cover quite a few topics in this podcast today. Um, so uh, as I say, Dr. Kelly is very good at giving us some pearls as we deal with ILD for the rheumatologist. So um, f- firstly, just to start off, from a rheumatology point of view, when we are doing our clinic reviews, when should we be thinking about screening for ILD? In particular, what key conditions and subtypes of those conditions would ILD be a real concern? And if ILD is seen in these conditions, how common is it? Good. Well, I think probably the two commonest rheumatic disorders where we might anticipate the development of ILD are rheumatoid arthritis and uh, systemic sclerosis. The overall prevalence in rheumatoid arthritis is just a little under 10%. The lifetime prevalence is probably about 8 or 9%. Uh, whereas in scleroderma, it's a lot higher than that. It's approaching 40%. But of course, rheumatoids are a lot more common than systemic sclerosis. So there are actually more patients with RA, ILD, the neurosclerodermal ILD. Yeah, of course. And a lot of the times on occasions, we'll find that we'll be doing chest x-rays for other reasons. uh, And um, we may pick up uh, on the x-ray finding things that make us want to order further investigations with suggestions of ILD. But what symptoms and signs would prompt us to order more investigations for ILD if we were suspicious about it in clinic? Yeah, I think if a patient complains of... uh, being rate limited by their breathing uh, rather than by joint pain, that's often a big clue. So clearly, uh, because of the systemic nature of the diseases we treat, there may be more than one rate limiting factor. So it's always useful, I find, to ask the patient, what is it that limits you uh, after you've asked them how far they can can walk? Um, And if they say it's my breathing, uh, then I think that's a, a good clue to take it further. Um, I would ask about dry cough as well. I think that exertional dyspnea and dry cough are two of the commonest symptoms that one has in relatively early ILD. And then obviously with physical examination in such patients, one might expect to listen for bibasal lung crackles that fail to clear on coughing. Um, and the presence of finger clubbing is worth looking for, although that's relatively rare in, in rheumatic ILD as compared to, for example, um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Okay. Um, so when it comes to then ordering further investigations, uh, what screening tests would you say are important to order at baseline and, and how do we interpret these? Yes, I think that traditionally, of course, we do a chest radiograph, but I think we're now increasingly of the opinion that that's really relatively insensitive and you can have quite significant ILD and still have no major abnormalities on a chest radiograph. But certainly if one does see um, bilateral lower lobe uh, reticulation or stranding on a chest X-ray, that would be a strong clue towards significant ILD. 
I think increasingly now with uh, the modified forms of high resolution computer tomography, which offer relatively low radiation exposure, our threshold for going straight to HRCT in patients we regard as being at significant risk of having uh, ILV, uh, I think we're, we're actually seeing that threshold fall. So gradually now we're looking to do HRCT rather than chest X-ray in patients with a reasonably high index of suspicion. By contrast, pulmonary function tests are very sensitive, um, but of course they're non-specific, and there are many other conditions that can reduce one's lung volumes or one's gas transfer. Um, so I tend to see pulmonary function tests are quite useful for monitoring patients as opposed to screening for disease. Uh, so for monitoring patients, once a diagnosis of ILD has been confirmed on high-resolution CT scanning. Yeah, lovely. And um, in terms of high-resolution CTs, then, what patterns um, do we see? Uh, and what, I suppose, from a rheumatologist's point of view, what, what do they mean in general um, when we're talking about the UIP, non-UIP patterns? Good. So usual interstitial pneumonia is uh, perhaps uh, the area that we need to look for. Uh, that's a condition which may well be associated with a progressive fibrosing phenotype. And indeed in RA patients with UIP, which is the predominant uh, type of uh, interstitial lung disease in RA, they can have a prognosis that uh, is very close to that seen in IPF, so quite a poor prognosis. Um, whereas non-UIP, which can be further subdivided into uh, non-specific interstitial pneumonia, uh, cryptogenic organizing pneumonia, and hypersensitivity pneumonia, and even lymphoid interstitial pneumonia, all of those subtypes carry a more benign prognosis um, and are associated with other types of, system of um, systemic rheumatic disease. So we might, for example, expect to find uh, NSIP as being the predominant feature in scleroderma, um, uh, COP is being a, a common feature in patients with Sjogren's syndrome. Um, and that subtype of non-UIP uh, is likely to be far less progressive in terms of fibrosis and may be more likely to respond to a different therapeutic approach. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so, um, and in terms of then, um, when we then do confirm interstitial lung disease, um, when we make a referral to the, our respiratory colleagues, is, is there further screening tests that they would like us to do to help the referral? Uh, and in your own practice as both a rheumatologist and a respiratory physician, is there other screening tests that you order when you're investigating people for ILD? Um, I mean, clearly there are times where it's quite clearly related to their underlying rheumatic disease, but um, does, that, does that change anything you do when you're seeing these people for workup? Yeah, I think that um, HRCT is very useful both for diagnosis and for assessing the uh, subtype and the extent of disease. So one of the things that's useful to know is what percentage of the lung is involved by the uh, process, uh, and that can be deduced now on HRCT. Um, the threshold really for talking about extensive disease is more than 20% of the lung involved, and we know that patients, again, will find their prognosis is influenced by the extent of disease. Um, I think for pulmonary function testing, it is useful to have gas transfer. It is a little bit more objective than uh, simple vital capacity measurements. Um, and I think that's important. Chest physicians are quite keen on things like six-minute walk tests, but that can be more difficult for rheumatic patients, particularly if they've got significant articular disease. Um, I think it is, however, worth checking oxygen saturation, um, albeit preferably after exertion, uh, because significant resting hypoxia 
um, is certainly relevant, and post-exertional hypoxia is often also relevant. So those are tests that uh, chest physicians would like. Mm -hmm. We also find that serology, even in patients with um, interstitial lung disease and no clinical evidence of rheumatic disorders, serology may pick up uh, relevant antibodies which can influence our therapeutic approach and the prognosis. So that's also quite a useful test for, uh, for, for assessing patients in more detail. Yes, yeah, so especially with the advent of the more extensive autoantibody profiles in myositis. And, um... Absolutely right, yeah. A lot of subtypes there, which definitely influence our, our approach. Antisynthetase anti syndrome is, is well recognized as a subtype, so is MDA5. And uh, these all have slightly different prognoses and, and slightly different therapeutic implications, therefore. Um, when we make a referral, let's say, for instance, we are we're confident of the rheumatic um, diagnosis and, and that the CILD is related to that. When we are discussing with our respiratory colleagues, that may be through an MDM, but is there anything else that they will help us with um, when we're making that referral, when they see these patients at clinic? I think that what often needs to happen is a dialogue, uh, and it really ideally should be a three-way dialogue because it should involve the patient as to what the patient's own priorities are. I think that one of the dangers of, of MDMs uh, and discussions between experts is that they may come up with the theoretical optimal therapeutic approach, but that may not be what the patient wants. And an example of that is that, for example, if the patient has NSIP and uh, uh, they've got rheumatoid or some other systemic condition like scleroderma, um, then we might start a drug for the respiratory condition, which wouldn't necessarily impact on the underlying systemic rheumatic condition. So we need to, to be honest with the patient and um, help them to understand what the limitations of our treatment are uh, so that we can also bear in mind what they want from any therapeutic intervention. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, so if a patient, for instance, comes in on the medical take or um, at clinic appears to be more unwell from a lung disease point of view, uh, is there key investigations that you would recommend before putting it down to, for instance, progressive uh, progression in their lung disease in a rheumatic condition? Absolutely, Ash. I think you're absolutely right. It's very important that we bear in mind that uh, all the glitters isn't gold. Um, so clearly we need to exclude infection, uh, both uh, classic uh, uh, microbes as well as atypical infection, uh, tuberculosis, for example, particularly in patients who are immunosuppressed. Um, I think the pulmonary embolism can sometimes present with uh, an apparent uh, sudden deterioration in underlying interstitial lung disease and it's uh, well-recognized complications. So very important to consider that because therapeutic uh, interventions are clearly very different. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis, particularly if they're on drugs that are associated with that. So if they're on methotrexate or even leflunomide, then we need to consider that and, and looking at things like the eosinophil level and the IgE levels may be helpful. Um, and occasionally cardiac disease can present with uh, um, left ventricular impairment or pulmonary edema, which can mimic uh, an exacerbation of underlying interstitial lung disease. So I think those are the main things to be aware of. That's great. So now if we look just at um, the number of conditions that we do deal with in rheumatology that can have associated ILD, so just in terms of treatment, can I ask from a general point of view, we've talked a little bit about NSIP and UIP, but do we then have a lower threshold to trial treatment um, uh, if the patient does uh, is suffering from an NS, NSIP pattern on their imaging? 
I think we do. I think what we've learned is that if we start treatment early in somebody with a predominantly inflammatory condition, such as NSIP, then we have a, a reasonable chance to uh, reduce the likelihood of them developing a progressive fibrosing phenotype. So I think we do have quite a low threshold now for starting a drug like uh, mycophenolate in somebody with an NSIP pattern. Um, I've certainly felt that that's become uh, an easier option to persuade chest physicians to uh, adopt over the last three or four years. I think that there's a, a much more widespread acceptance among rheumatologists as well that uh, such an approach is now justified in many cases of NSIP. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so if we just focus then on um, different conditions, so firstly, systemic sclerosis, um, wh where are we at in terms of treatment options for systemic sclerosis at present? Yeah, I think that's actually broadened quite a lot. So it used to be cyclophosphamide, uh, cyclophosphamide or um, cyclophosphamide. Uh, and we now know that that drug can be quite a toxic agent and that after a while, responsiveness to it declines. So I think there's been a move towards exploring options. Um, one of the options is, is rituximab. There's been a lot of evidence in the last year or two that uh, rituximab may be at least as effective, if not more effective than cyclophosphamide in dealing not just with the interstitial lung disease, but also with some of the other systemic manifestations of systemic sclerosis. Um, and whether one uses cyclophosphamide or rituximab, um, very often we'd use them to induce remission uh, and then perhaps switch them to mycophenolate to try to maintain that remission um, and reduce the amount of uh, rituximab or cyclophosphamide required in terms of subsequent courses. Um, for those patients who do go on to develop a, a progressive fibrosing phenotype, um, it's very reasonable then to add in an antifibrotic. And I think that that uh, is, again, something which we're seeing happening uh, at an earlier stage. Um, we've tended to move away from steroids. Uh, we, we're less dependent on them now that we have these other agents. Um, and we do still use proton pump inhibitors in systemic sclerosis because it's well recognized that uh, the risk of aspiration uh, even silent aspiration is quite uh, significant, and that can lead to deterioration in the lung disease. Okay, great. Um, in terms of then um, myositis, um, what, what are our main options there? As you alluded to earlier, I think it does depend to some extent on the subtypes. Uh, every time I read a paper, they found a, another subtype, but uh, we've seen a lot of antibody-specific <clears throat> antibody disease um, and we do know that the range of prognosis relating to this is quite significant now. Um, and they can be a very life-threatening illness. So you can see in people with a myositis um, profile who develop uh, uh, interstitial lung disease, it can be very acute, very severe, very suddenly, and uh, they can, can be very hard to treat. So we often actually give a combination of cyclophosphamide and rituximab in the first instance, if they've got severe disease, um, with the intention then of uh, maintaining rituximab and then ultimately adding in mycophenolate. That does vary depending on the patient as well as on the subtype of disease, but that is something which we've started to do now in the more severe cases. Uh, an example of that might be the MDA5 subtype, where we know that there's a high risk of rapid evolution toward a, a fibrosing phenotype, which we believe we can help to reduce the probability or the speed of by such a combined approach. Okay, that's interesting. And then in terms of um, uh, lupus, Sjogren's and mixed connective tissue disease, um, in terms of treatment options for, for these conditions? 
Yes, so I think that these conditions, um, with the exception of SLE, are, are generally milder. So the respiratory manifestations of Sjogren's or MCTD tend to be less severe than what we see perhaps in some of the other patients with a, a myositis or, or, or rheumatoid UIP. Uh, so in that situation, we quite often find that their uh, underlying interstitial lung disease uh, fits best with a, a cryptogenic organizing pneumonia or even with a lymphoid interstitial pneumonia, that's particularly true in Sjogren's syndrome. Um, and those patients tend to have a, a better natural history, but where treatment is indicated, then uh, it is guided as to uh, how active their systemic disease is as to what one might use. One might use rituximab if they've got systemic disease that's active in other organs. Uh, one might find that mycophenolate um, or even steroids would be adequate in others with a less severe disease. I think it's something different for SLE because true interstitial lung disease is quite rare in that condition, but you can get uh, some quite nasty forms of lung disease and lupus, uh, diffuse alveolar damage presenting with pulmonary hemorrhage being probably the extreme form. And in that situation, again, one's going back to the same sort of treatment profile that one might use with myositis and perhaps looking at giving cyclophosphamide with rituximab to try and induce early remission. But, and one always needs to be aware of the risk of um, hemorrhage uh, as a result of pulmonary embolism in lupus. So looking for the lupus anticoagulant is important in lupus patients because that too may offer another therapeutic avenue. Mm. Uh, and then with, uh, with, with rheumatoid, um, uh, are we looking at things like rituximab and abatacept biologic therapy? Yes, so in rheumatoid, again, one's guided to an extent by the amount of underlying articular damage and inflammation. But if one is to use a biologic, and I think that's often guided by a combination of their articular and pulmonary manifestations, and those are the two agents that the evidence presently supports the use of, rituximab and abatacept. Um, there's good evidence that in each case, we can expect around 15% of patients to actively improve significantly over a year. Uh, with only around 5 to 10% deteriorating and the majority remaining stable. So those agents certainly have got a reasonably good evidence base to support them. I think there's increasing evidence that maybe toxilimab is, is also uh, potentially effective, um, although I think more likely in patients who are seronegative, um, whereas rituximab in particular is, is more effective in seropositive smoking patients. So the mechanism of action uh, is a further factor. So those patients with predominantly B-cell activation, um, often linked to seropositivity and uh, smoking may do better with uh, rituximab. Great. And, and also then the um, eternal question about methotrexate and lung disease. Uh, am I right in my understanding, uh, and you can correct me obviously if I'm wrong, that methotrexate is probably safe and probably protective for ILD in, in um, rheumatoid arthritis, there is this still lingering query that really with underlying ILD, um, there is this potentially slightly higher risk of getting methotrexate-induced pneumonitis. So there is still this reluctance to prescribe in those patients. Would that be where we're at at the moment? I think you're right, Ash. I think it's changed quite markedly over the last few years. So I think up till five years ago, we were very wary of using methotrexate in patients with established ILD. And there's still a, a level of anxiety around that because of the small risk of inducing uh, fatal uh, methotrexate pneumonitis. Um, because if you get pneumonitis due to methotrexate and you've got normal lung reserve, then you're far more likely to survive than if you've got marked impairment of uh, baseline function. 
Um, so yeah, that's an understandable anxiety. Uh, so we are still wary, perhaps, of giving methotrexate to patients with well-established ILD. But we do think that in uh, a naive rheumatoid population, de novo, uh, which are followed up over time, the uh, development of ILD is reduced by up to 50% by patients who are receiving methotrexate as compared to receiving um, a, a different DMARC. So I think that if one is looking to prevent ILD in RA, then there is some evidence that methotrexate may offer that level of protection. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then in terms of the ANCA-positive vasculitis, um, I suppose, again, um, in terms of seropositivity or um, uh, uh, MPO positivity, can that change your management in these patients? I think it does. I think the patients who are strongly MPO positive or ANCA positive, um, traditionally the patients that we would feel with high dose aggressive cyclophosphamide um, and methylprednisolone still often do uh, receive such an approach, but we are now using uh, rituximab as an alternative more commonly. And again, the recent data on, on vasculitis suggests that rituximab is as effective as cyclophosphamide and probably in the long term causes fewer side effects. So I think we're gradually seeing a replacement of cyclophosphamide with rituximab. And then in patients with less severe disease or those who have had remission induction with cyclophosphamide or rituximab and we want to maintain that remission, uh, I think we're gradually seeing the same thing happening with azathioprine being uh, replaced with mycophenolate. So we're moving towards more mycophenolate, uh, less azathioprine, more rituximab, less cyclophosphamide. Okay, brilliant. Then in terms of prognosis, um, can we um, relate prognosis to the various patterns on uh, high-resolution CT? Yes, we can. So as mentioned, uh, patients with uh, UIP do less well than those with other patterns. Um, and patients sensitive more than 20% of lung involvement do uh, less well than those with uh, uh, limited disease, under 20% involvement. So if one looks at, for example, a patient with uh, extensive UIP on HRCT, they're eight times more likely to die over the uh, next uh, three years than somebody with uh, limited uh, NSIP. So I think both the extent and the subtype are major determinants of prognosis. Okay, brilliant. And um, I suppose another very important point is um, patients with ILD, when they can come in on, say, for instance, the medical take, um, there may have been detailed discussions already about prognosis. Um, we're obviously, when we're talking about managing these patients and talking about ceiling of care discussions, I suppose, what are the important aspects of some of those discussions which you may have had with patients that would help us? Yes, I think that um, what we're hoping uh, is that the use of antifibrotics will help to delay the point at which patients' condition is considered to be uh, irreversible or untreatable. So the hope is that even in those with progressing fibrosing phenotypes, that the introduction of earlier antifibrotic therapy will uh, delay the progression of disease and thereby delay the time to which they end up in a situation where we are having to consider palliative rather than uh, therapeutic intervention. Um, but it's really important that we do use uh, agents like oxygen uh, uh, effectively, um, that we do treat reversible causes such as pulmonary embolism and infection um, and aspiration. Uh, and I think once we've done that in, in symptomatic patients with end-stage disease, um, active palliation with um, appropriate agents is, is really important. And although 
there has been in the past a certain reluctance to involve the terminal care or palliative teams in the management of patients without cancer. I think uh, patients with end-stage pulmonary fibrosis are a group which have benefited greatly from the relaxation of that approach and the involvement of a palliative team uh, over the last few uh, weeks or months of a patient's life. Yeah, brilliant. Um, well, Dr. Kelly, that has been um, a whirlwind tour through ILD. Thank you so much um, for your time and uh, that really um, useful discussion. Thank you very much for inviting me and involving me, Ash. Okay. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.